Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And today on the show, I'm so excited that we are talking to Nina McLaughlin, who is a carpenter and also the author of her carpentry memoir, Hammerhead, The Making of a Carpenter. Yeah, fascinating reading. Um, it's all sort of about the journey that Nina went on from being in journalism, which is a familiar story to Kristen and me with our backgrounds, um, and sort of realizing that, uh, putting it mildly, it's not what she wanted to do anymore. She no longer wanted to click buttons on, on social media for her job. Yeah, I mean, the first part of the book where she talks about this realization she comes to with uh, wanting to leave this alt-weekly called the Boston Phoenix after working there for eight years was very familiar to Caroline and me because we both went to journalism school and graduated on the cusp of the transition from print media to online media. And the entire business model changed and... Nina was already working in this field and she talks a lot about how the, the fast, quick click satisfaction that so much of online media is, is built around really became soul crushing in a lot of ways. Yeah, it definitely resonated with me because I also left a newspaper, uh, amid the recession. Uh, not knowing what my next step would be and, you know, eventually uh, came to this uh, fabulous podcast and she found carpentry. So it's, it, it, you know, it's a nice, encouraging tale that, yeah, you can take a leap of faith and find something that works better for you. Yeah. And, and one of the most encouraging things to me reading it, too, was that Nina didn't have this lifelong dream of being a carpenter. Um, and it's also uncanny, too, that she would end up in this field that, as we talked about on our podcast a little while back on women in construction, it has very few women among its ranks. I mean, if we just look at construction in general, women make up just 2.6% of employees across the board. And we even mentioned in that podcast how uh, carpentry apprenticeships often have a really big drop-off rate for women as well. That's right. I mean, it's it's a leaky pipeline issue in apprenticeships in general. But yeah, like Kristen said, the issue is so much worse in carpenter apprenticeships. 70% of of women end up dropping out of those apprenticeship positions. So it was extra fascinating for us to read this firsthand account of a journalist turned carpenter stepping into this field that we usually associate with men. And I mean, the book itself is fabulously written. It's very engaging. She weaves all sorts of uh, bits of history about carpentry and construction. And in the book, she also does such a a wonderful job describing the deep sense of joy and satisfaction that she gets out of building something and building something slowly. So before we get into our conversation with Nina, which, by the way, she talked to us from her carpentry site. So she's not in a recording studio. There is a little bit of noise pollution going on. But please listen anyway, because she was a fantastic 
interview. So to kick things off, Caroline, could you read an excerpt from Hammerhead about how she discovered carpentry? Yeah, Nina writes, One teary morning in early spring, doing my daily click around the Craigslist job section, reviewing once again the same few posts in the writing, editing, and art media design sections, I clicked on the etc. category. Amid postings looking for dog walkers, surrogate mothers up to $40,000, tempting, and catheter users, $25 for your opinion, less so, I came across a line of text that registered itself in my chest with a quick extra thump of my heart. Carpenter's assistant, women strongly encouraged to apply. This simple post seemed to glow, holding in it the promise of exactly what I'd been craving. My fingers fluttered over the keyboard, ready to write the note that would convince this person that I was the right woman for the job. And Nina has talked so much about how that line, women strongly encouraged to apply, was what really pushed her to do this. She she said before that if that wasn't specified, she probably wouldn't have responded to that Craigslist ad. So, listeners, allow us to introduce you to Nina McLaughlin. Well, Nina, could we start off by hearing a little bit about your background and your sort of seemingly unlikely journey from journalism over to carpentry? Sure. So um, my my first job out of uh, college was at a newspaper, a weekly um, newspaper in Boston called the Boston Phoenix. And um, and it was an amazing place to work. It was sort of filled with a bunch of brilliant, bizarre, curious, funny people. And it really it didn't feel like work. You know, every day was sort of a pleasure. Um, as the years went on, my job evolved and I became one of the web editors. And that sort of meant the hours of my day were spent sort of staring and clicking and scrolling the computer screen. And it started to get a little tiresome and it got sort of cosmically boring. Um, and I found that I was kind of sitting at my desk, kind of craving something a little bit more tangible um, and not really knowing what that meant, but knowing that I sort of wanted to get away from the screen. For leading up to 30, I, you know, finally kind of got the courage and and quit my job, not knowing what I would do next. So this was back in 2008. The economy was in the toilet at the moment. And so there were many, many months where I was like, oh, God, what have I done? I have made a huge mistake. I was sitting one morning uh, looking at Craigslist and saw a posting saying, Carpenter's assistant, women strongly encouraged to apply. And without sort of knowing that, like, this was the job that I wanted, uh, this, you know, the, 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 like, this is, this is it. This is exactly what I want to do. Um, so answered the ad and uh, got an interview with uh, a woman named Mary, a car- carpenter and contractor and um, ended up getting the job and have been doing, have been working with her for the last six years. And in fact, I'm on the job right now and taking a quick break. Well, one of the things that uh, we really enjoyed in the book are those tidbits of the histories of tools and the kind of uh, industry vernacular that you share throughout the book. Um, For instance, you have given me a new appreciation for the term skosh. Um, so I was wondering if there was a particular aspect of that kind of background research that you especially enjoyed, something that maybe lent new life to your toolbox. 
Sure. You know, it's funny, like there's so many things that I sort of took for granted. For example, um, you know, the screwdriver, I just figured that was sort of a tool like the hammer that has been around for essentially, you know, since since humans have been using tools. Um, not the case at all. Uh, the Phillips head, for example, has only been sort of in active use um, since Cadillacs were being made. My favorite part of the research, I think, was definitely having to do with, it, with the different sort of um, evolution of measurement. It sort of all used to be based on the body, um, finger length, foot length, how long your stride was. Um, in ancient India, one of the one of the terms has to do with the distance you, um, that you can hear a cow mooing. Um, and so it's just a sort of a neat way to sort of um, reckon with space. Uh, so that, I think, sort of impacted, I don't know, how I moved through the world more than anything else. Well, I have to ask then, do you have a favorite unit of measurement? <laughs> unit of measurement. Um, you know, you mentioned skosh. That's that seems like a sort of the perfect kind of um, uh, both exact and inexact uh, measurement. It can mean many different things. Um, I was just sort of uh, sawing some boards just a few minutes ago, um, and and my boss Mary had just said one was a little bit too long. Take a skosh off that. So I've just just been doing that. It's sort of a measurement we use all the time. Now, another thing that Nina talks about and that you're almost waiting for in Hammerhead is the aspect of being a woman on the job site. Because like we've mentioned, it's rare to find a woman construction worker, much less a woman carpenter. And while she talks about how gender was never an issue for her, she does acknowledge that the fact of the matter is, as she writes, carpentry is men's work. And she goes on to say, carpentry is work that is statistically done by men. The U.S. Census Bureau in its 2011 survey reports that construction and extraction occupations are made up of 97.6% men and 2.4% women. It's the most gender disbalanced of the occupations they list, more than engineering and architecture, more than farming, fishing and forestry work, more than firefighting. And she goes on to write, the IWPR cites the hostile environment and many male-dominated trades as a reason why so few women have access to these jobs. There is considerable research suggesting that occupational choice is often constrained by socialization, lack of information, or more direct barriers to entry to training or work in occupations where one sex is a small minority of the workforce. If no other woman you've known or even know of do a certain job, it won't necessarily feel like an option for you to take steps to plot out what you might like to pursue in your own life. And I think just as there are certain jobs like nurse, dental hygienist, secretary that some men might feel would call into question their masculinity, the same goes for women. There are certain jobs that raise questions about femininity. Though I didn't often reflect on the scarcity of women doing this work in a general sociological sense, I did find the work challenging my own ideas and sense of femininity and sexuality. So in reading press about your book, it seems like 
alongside reporting about, oh, she she jumped out of her job during during the recession. Mm. It seems like equally up there is the fact that, oh, and by the way, she did this as a woman. And Mm. so Mm. you you recently wrote over at Carpendrix about how often you get asked about being a woman in such an overwhelmingly, particularly white, male-dominated industry. And considering how much you've had to emphasize that gender hasn't been an issue on work sites, do you think that your audience, your, especially like your journalistic audience, is almost wanting the answer to be the opposite, that you have experienced hostile or unfriendly work sites for women? That's a really interesting question. You know, I mean, I don't know. It certainly has been almost surprising to me how how much people assume how hostile it is and how raunchy and how, you know, you guys must be condescended to all the time and it must all be kind of just like burping and, and swearing with all these guys around. Um, and, and, you know, that just, I mean, that just hasn't been our experience. You know, there's been moments where we've run across some guys that are jerks. There's been some, um, certainly some places where um, we try to avoid some lumber yards where the, the attitudes are a little bit less friendly. Um, but I mean, I think the thing about it is that, you know, I have had these kind of dual pursuits um, in my, you know, my sort of professional life. And there are as many condescending guys in journalism and in the sort of literary world that I'm in as there are in carpentry, if not more, you know. And so I think that there is this kind of it's like there's going to be jerks in any realm, you know. Um, I don't know. I found it maybe even less so with the carpentry, the people that we work with are respectful, funny, um, uh, and, and, and sort of, it's, it's a sort of open sharing, I don't know, situation where there isn't this kind of, I don't know, male, uh, for lack of a better word. Um, in terms of people's expectations, like, um, I think it's kind of a misconception of what people think of, um, you know, when they think of builders and when they think of carpenters and people. They think, I think, maybe that people are, uh, these guys are, tend to be a little rougher around the edges. Um, I mean, and, you know, I guess it can sort of be true, but I think that it's no more or less true than it is in, in other industries. Well, I wonder too if, especially in reading the book, if maybe that has to do with the nature of the work site, because it really seemed like from the way that you described interacting you know, at these various jobs that what mattered was the work and you were all kind of, you know, there with your specific skill set. And at the Mm -hmm. end of the day, what mattered wasn't ego necessarily, but whether, you know, the door fit on the hinge or whether the tile was aligned correctly. Do you think that that might have something to do with that as well? Yeah, actually, absolutely. I think that, you know, it's, 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 we're all trying to get a job done, you know, so, so Mary and I are here and Mary's the contractor. She's hiring out for plumbers, electricians. We're all working together to finish a job. Um, and it, and if the things are done well and done right, you know, we can all sort of go home, um, and feel, and feel pleased, you know, and feel like, uh, no one was getting in each other's way. We all sort of work together in this kind of odd little team that we have going on. Um, and that's, I mean, and that's the thing, you know, it's like, I mean, it's the same 
you know, it's a shared pursuit, just like putting together a newspaper week to week was um, that, you know, sometimes you get, you know, a little bit like someone's a little late at the deadline. Someone's not going as fast as they could be with the plumbing or have put a pipe in the wrong place and it slows us down. Um, uh, so it is, you know, and it's just a matter of kind of um, figuring out the mistakes, writing, writing what's been wrong and uh, and getting on with it. So at one point you write, the work I was doing didn't make me less of a woman, but it felt like that in a profound and surprising way. So I was wondering if you could talk about how carpentry shaped your sense of being a 30-year-old woman and whether you think of carpentry as gendered work anymore. Sure. I um you know, I was really, I was really surprised as I, as I started the work, you know, I, you know, I'm dressed in sort of paint splattered jeans and, um, a couple different layers of shirts, a sports bra, my hair is tied back, um, you know, and I'm, I'm wielding framing guns and drills and hammers and stuff all day. And I, and I found that it really did kind of rattle my sense of femininity. I, um, I, you know, I felt like a boy. I felt like, I felt like a dude. Um, and, um, and it was a surprise. Like, that's, it was, again, it was sort of this, this, you know, you, you're, you're, I don't know, at least my, my, my womanness felt like that's some sort of core part of what I am and who I am. And I was surprised that, um, the clothes that I was wearing and, you know, the tools that I was holding were powerful enough to kind of, rattle that to kind of shake it up a little bit. Um, and it, and it took a little while. It took a little while to sort of be able to hold both woman and carpenter in myself at once. Um, it certainly did happen. Um, and at, at this point now, it feels like a very powerful combination. Um, uh, as for whether it's gendered work, I mean, the fact of the matter is it's still, you know, between, uh, you know, it's between 97 and 99% um, male-dominated. Um, and it hasn't changed much um, over the last 30 years either. So in terms of whether it's gendered, yes. I mean, the, yes, it is. Um, does that mean it should be? Um, no. I, you know, I think that I'm not going to say that every woman should go, you know, go to trade school and learn to become a carpenter. But I would say that if that's, you know, if that's where your interests lie, um, don't be discouraged at all, you know, be discouraged by the preconception that this is only for men or that, you know, it's going to be much harder than any other job. Um, it won't be necessarily. Now, one of the primary characters in the book is Nina's boss, Mary. And Mary is this veteran carpenter who has to show Nina the ropes because when she walks into this job, she has no skills whatsoever. She, you know, obviously knows how to write and put together articles and edit and publish things on the Internet, but she doesn't know how to actually build things. So I love this description in the book of the first time she meets Mary, in which she writes, The carpenter stood at the end of the driveway across the street from the schoolyard, hand in pockets of khaki cargo pants. I'd expected a larger woman, muscled and broad. She was a couple inches shorter than me, narrow-shouldered, small-framed. Her ragwool sweater had holes in the elbows, and when she reached out her hand to shake mine, she smiled wide, revealing crooked teeth, the front two with a wide gap, the right one stained and snagged at an angle. Her dark eyes shined kind. 
Her shoulders were set forward, the not-quite-hunched posture of a 13-year-old boy, confused and hiding her new broadness, or of a woman not in the habit of throwing her shoulders back to emphasize her breasts. The gray and blue striped woolen cap she wore over her short, coarse hair, salt and pepper, lent her an elfish quality, and her voice when she greeted me, so you're the journalist, was higher than what looked like would come from her face. Mary, she said as we shook hands, nice weather. It seems like one of the things that helped you bridge that gap between, you know, maybe not knowing whether or not you could do this job that is so overwhelmingly male and foreign as it was for you at the beginning was Mary and this relationship Mm -hmm. between you and Mary reads like a how-to guide for strong female-to-female mentorship. And Mm. so I was just wondering, aside from the kinds of hands-on skills that she taught you, obviously, in terms of how to use these tools and how to build things, Mm -hmm. how to take a skosh off of a piece (laughs) of plywood, what have been some of the important lessons that you learned from her in that working relationship you all have sustained now for so long? Sure. Um, I feel so lucky to have been teamed up with Mary. And, you know, I think the fact is I had that had that initial posting not said women strongly encouraged to apply. I would not have had the courage to, to throw, throw my hat in the ring. Um, so I think that that had everything to do with it. Um, and in terms of, you know, what I learned from Mary beyond the all the sort of the just skills, she's about 13 years older than I am. So she's she's uh, 49 at this point. And um, I think. One of the things learning by example for Mary is um, she has an, an enormous well of patience. She's one of the most patient people that I've ever encountered. And sort of seeing her ability to stay with a frustrating task, to sort of um, instead of kind of, you know, throwing a tool across the room and having some sort of swearing fit, you know, she just sort of calmly takes a look, sometimes goes out and has a cigarette break, puts it over, uh, and comes back to it with a calm head. And I think seeing that um, over and over again over these past years has really helped me. I don't, I'm not, I, I'm a truly patient person. I'm quick to frustration myself. And that has sort of seen, seen the fact that you can kind of stay calm and there are ways to kind of not sort of, I don't know, uh, lose your mind in moments. Um, that's been a huge lesson. Um, and it translates beyond the sort of the work site where there's so many sort of little daily frustrations, but into many other realms, into relationships with, with people, your family, um, you know, my romantic relationship with my boyfriend. Um, and so it's, I mean, it's, it's an extremely powerful. Well, I'm interested in that whole concept of patience because mm. as someone who used to work uh, in the publishing and journalism realm and had to do all of that pointing and clicking on a screen, I'm kind of interested in hearing your ideas about appreciating the slow burn of building mm. something and seeing it come together as opposed to what I've heard you talk about as the quick ego stroke that you get from mm-hmm. interacting online, especially since, you know, Kristen and I are on social media all the time with our podcast. And we, yes, we were making podcasts and tweeting and all of that stuff all the time. Yeah, I mean, I'd like to hear that from a professional perspective, but also, I mean, like a, a personal one, just in how that affects you personally and, and how you view the 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 slow creation process versus the fast ego stroke. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I'm absolutely like on Facebook and Tumblr and Twitter, you know, all the time when I'm not at work. Like, it's it's hard for me to resist it. Um, um, I will say, like, you know, for example, um, say building a deck. You know, let's you know, we built we built a deck um, summer that was huge, 800 square feet, massive, bigger bigger than my apartment. Um, and um, and it took it took some weeks um, of of constant everyday hard pretty hard labor um and to finish that i mean the fact that this is something that's going to be used for years um that's gonna that's gonna sort of with luck i hope uh you know last last beyond our lifetimes um that you can kind of stand stand on and kick and jump on and whatever you know i mean it's like that's incredible (laughs) it blows my mind you know that first there was a space and now there's an entire structure because of our efforts, you know? Um, um, so there's like the satisfaction is more lasting. Um, and with writing, I don't know, I guess for me, it's harder. It's harder to feel the pride that I feel with writing is sort of, a, I'll feel for a flash and that'll be gone and I'll see all the sentences that I could have written better. Um, with the carpentry, maybe still so new. Um, I look at the things we build and I just think, oh my gosh, this is the greatest thing we've ever done, you know? Um, Because it still strikes me as a miracle, you know? Like, first there was nothing and now there's a bathroom or, uh, you know, first there was a blank wall and now there's a beautiful set of bookcases. Um, uh, And so, you know, I mean, I don't don't for a second kind of discredit um, our online lives. I think they're, they're, they're they're an important part of our reality right now too. Um, but I will say I feel I feel extremely grateful to have the two in combination. I feel like they balance each other out really nicely. So, which is more satisfying then, completing a deck or completing an entire book? <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, gosh, you know it's funny. Like, um, oh God, let me think. Um, <laughs> It's that fun. might be a little bit of a trick question. I don't know. No, I know. With, with writing the book, you know, I mean, that's, it's funny. Like, I, 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 I grew up wanting to be a writer. You know, that's what I wanted to do since, since I was really young. Um, so that does, that does have a dream come true quality to it. Um, it does sort of feel like a surreal and amazing thing. Um, I will say, like, you know, um, flipping through it, there is this kind of, like, you know, I, I cringe at some of the lines and think, like, oh, God, I should not have put that in. Um, whereas, you know, this, again, this deck that I, that I mentioned before, I, I think every time I think about that and the times I've gone back to take a look at it, like, it's like, this is still so beautiful and so amazing. Um, uh, so, again, I don't know. I don't know what the time is. I'm not sure. <laughs> well, do you think that carpentry could use more women. I mean, do you think that they're also perhaps uh, not to get too gender boxy about it, but maybe mm, mm. craft skills that crafts women might bring to the table that might be different from crafts men. <laughs> you know, yeah, I I I I get sort of uh nervous again about sort of falling into sort of gender boxes too, but I guess one of the things that I that I would say is that I think that you know, there is something a little gentler maybe about Mary and my approach with clients. Um, I think that we're very respectful of the fact that these are people's homes that we're working in. We keep the work site extremely tidy um, every day, kind of at least, you know, sort of half an hour at the end of the day is always spent making sure the place looks great. Uh, 
and, and I think a lot of a lot of people in the trade, male or female, sort of work that way. Um, but I think there's there's something maybe a little bit more approachable, certainly for people who maybe don't know that much about renovation work to begin with. It can be kind of intimidating. Um, because it is a different language and it is, you know, your, your life will be disrupted for a little while if you're getting, for example, your kitchen redone, you know. And so having people who are going to be able to kind of articulate what's happening in a way that's kind of, you know, clear and, again, I think it back to the word gentle. I don't know why. <laughs> um, uh, as opposed to these, you know, people, guys, big guys who are, I don't know, that maybe would be a little bit gruffer seeming. Um, and I realize I'm sort of contradicting what I was saying that, you know, the, the guys that we work with are, you know, as I said, respectful. And there is, you know, there's an intimacy that develops. We, you know, we will, we come in and to your house and stay for a week or two weeks or six weeks. And there's, you know, that we're, we're, we're part of our clients lives for a little while. And I think that like really honoring that and really sort of, I don't know, respecting the fact that, that we're going to be there and we're going to be disrupting you and, and sort of making that process as smooth and, and easy as possible. And I think there is something maybe, again, I, I get nervous sort of with those gender boxes, but like that maybe a little bit something more feminine about that, um, having that kind of, I don't know, respect for that aspect of the work. Well, I'm interested to hear both sort of in your professional day-to-day life, but also in your personal creative carpentry life. Do you have a favorite tool? Do you have a favorite project that you want, you love to work on? And is there something that you cannot wait to build next? Sure. Um, so favorite tool, um, Two, two sort of favorites. One is a very simple pry bar, sort of like a smaller version of crowbar, um, for its very, um, sort of simple ability, uh, to translate human strength. Um, we use it all the time for a variety of things. And, uh, there's just something, I don't know, so elegant, um, in its simplicity and its, its sort of understated power, which really has appealed to me for a long time. I also love the Japanese saw, which is, um, Western saws, um, cut on the push. Uh, the Japanese saw cuts on the pull, which means that, um, the kerf, which is the, the sort of the space that the, the saw blade makes, the little line that the saw blade makes is more precise. It's a little thinner. Um, and I just happen to love using that, using that saw. Um, as for um, projects that I particularly love, you know, hour for hour building bookshelves is not uh, the most exciting work, but I always love doing them. Um, I guess maybe for obvious reasons, um, it kind of it kind of elevates the hours and sanding and sort of just cutting straight boards, um, knowing that that's what they'll become. I also quite love tiling. Um, maybe it was that was because that was the first thing I learned to do with Mary, um, but that's always been kind of appealing to me as well. And and honestly, you know, it's I think first the first wall that I ever built um, sort of blew my mind. I mean, it's like in your whole life, you know, you're surrounded by walls every room that you're in. Um, and I and I had never thought about sort of what goes into it. Again, it was the sort of thing I took for granted. And so the process of building the first wall um, was just this total, total mind-boggling, mind-blowing experience. And that hasn't gone away. I still kind of enjoy seeing the walls, framing walls and drywall and the rest. And as for a project I'm looking forward to doing, um, one of the things I've been sort of doing recently, I've been teaching myself how to make tables. Um, and that's been um, 
that that process has proved <laughs> really powerful as well. And I and I'm always afraid of sounding like this total fruitcake. Like, um, I think there's something sacred about coming around a table, you know, gathering around a table for a meal, and was sort of surprised by. Um, I don't know the, the sort of sanctity of the process of making something that people will gather around um, for years. And, and my tables are crude, um, not particularly well made at this point, um, but I'm doing them. And I've, uh, I'm sort of for the next. Uh, I've just started a project for a friend of mine, actually, a kind of a weighted thing present half. Also, she's about to have a baby. Um, I'm making her two end tables to flank her her couch. And so I'm really excited for that. Both that it's for a friend, it's going to be some pretty special wood. So I'm, I'm really excited to dig into that. Well, for any listeners, and especially female listeners, who now are itching to become like you and learn how to make tables or put walls up or make these incredible decks and all these kinds of things, how would you, how would you recommend to get started? Because like you said, there's a whole new language that goes along with this. All of these tools, there's that intimidation factor. What's one simple, if there is a simple way to start? You know, I think partly, I think a bunch of cities are starting to have organizations that um, sort of help women get involved in the trade. So I would say look to see if your city has um, any of these organizations and reach out to them. Um, if you want to sort of have just sort of a, a little bit of a case before taking, you know, quitting your job and taking the full plunge, um, a lot of adult education places have classes that you can take about furniture mill, furniture making, um, sort of basic carpentry classes, um, and that's be able to sort of get your hands some tools, get some, get a feel for some wood, um, to see if the if the if the work does appeal to you. Um, and so I think that's that's the start. And I think if you are more stu- more serious about it, um, try to get in touch with some contractors, male or female, and and ask you know ask them, do you know of any women in the trades who might be looking or who I could buy a cup of coffee for and 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 sort of pick their brain about how they got started, how they might recommend I get started. Um, that would be, you know, I mean, for someone really sort of looking to make that step, I think that would be a really good first first step to uh, to take to sort of get involved. I did want to ask you one quick question. Uh, does your stomach turn whenever you see those pink hammers and ladies' tool sets that are all in, like, pink and purples? It's a great question. I'm sort of of two minds. Partly, yes, I think. And another way is I think, like, all right, if that makes it more palatable for a woman to pick up a hammer, that's great. You know, like, that's, that's, I'm all for that. I think there is this process of demystification that, like, oh, these things are unknowable. Like, this is a realm of, of knowledge I'll never grasp. Oh, I couldn't, I, you know, I couldn't, you know, hammer a nail. But in fact, it's, it's not. It's all graspable. graspable graspable. Um, uh, and so if that, if, if, if a pink hammer motivates a woman to pick, to pick one up, I, I mean, I support that. I, I, you know, kind of reluctantly and a little bit like, well, Nina, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us and thanks so much for writing hammerhead again. I really, really enjoyed the book and am going to probably reread it partially as a how-to guide for me attempting to, I don't know, build a table or something. So probably maybe <laughs> probably not with a, a pink handled hammer, yeah. but we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> Who knows? Um, oh, I really appreciate it. It was great talking with you guys. 
Well, again, thank you so much to Nina McLaughlin for coming on the show and talking to us today. We learned a ton and, you know, I kind of want to go build a table or a you know, a passion project deck now. Yeah, let's go build a deck, Carol. Yeah, we'll build a podcast deck. We can do that. Yeah, surely. It, it might be very low to the ground and very small. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so if you want to find out more about Nina and what she's working on, make sure you go over to ninamclaughlin.com. You can also find her blog at carpentricks.tumblr.com. And make sure you tweet her about how much you loved what she had to say on the podcast at the underscore carpentricks. And now I'm curious to know whether there are any carpentrixes. Is the, is the plural of carpentrix carpentrixes, Caroline? Carpentresses? Carpentresses, yeah. Carpentresses, okay. Or we can just call them carpenters. Yeah. If there are any other carpenters listening, we're curious to hear from you and what your experience has been and what your favorite thing to build is. And also, are you a fan of the Japanese saw? Because those sound pretty rad. <laughs> Email us, momstuff at howstuffworks.com. And you can also tweet us at momstuffpodcast and message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you when we come right back from a quick break. So speaking of women in construction, I've got a letter here from Katie who writes, I was so excited to see you did a podcast about women in construction. As this topic is very near and dear to my heart, being an engineer, I had to write in and tell you that you nailed so many things that are difficult about working in the industry. I live in a mid-sized city, and I cannot buy the everyday safety equipment I need in my size locally. Gloves are typically only sold in men's size medium and above, unless I want flowery gardening gloves. Safety vests, size small medium, could fit two of me in them, and forget finding any women's steel-toed boots that meet the requirement of my job. And the bathrooms. Prior to work starting on a project, I will scout out the area to see what restrooms are available. And this information is passed down to any other woman working on the project, like grandma's prized apple pie recipe. It's a logistical problem that men don't even have to give a second thought to, but that's so crucial for women. I always bring hand sanitizer and extra toilet paper, as often porta potties run out of or aren't supplied with these necessities. And God help you if you're on your period. Changing a tampon in a hot, stinky, dirty porta potty without being able to wash your hands? No thank you. Luckily, the company I work for is great, and I haven't been faced with any of the harassment from coworkers or even the subcontractors we work with. However, as a woman, you are definitely treated differently. From my experience dealing with subcontractors, being a slender woman in my early 30s, I either get treated like their daughter, the hot girl next door, or ignored. While this can have its benefits, men will often volunteer to help me carry supplies or complete difficult tasks, it stinks to feel like I'm not being taken as seriously as my male counterparts. And on those occasions where I'm out in the field with a male coworker, it's awkward when a contractor ignores me and only addresses my male colleague, especially if I'm in the more senior position. And she goes on to say, one thing that I've been thinking about since you discussed the dif- differences in dress codes for male and female lawyers is the difficulty in walking the fine line between casual and overdressed in my office. Often men I work with will wear jeans or khakis with a plaid dress or technical fabric shirts and sneakers. However, that similar plaid dress or technical shirt that I've found for women generally look cutesy and not businesslike. So my choice is jeans and khakis with a plain t-shirt or dress pants with a button-up or a dressy shirt and heels or nice flats. 
One is perceived as more casual than my coworkers, and one is more dressy. I haven't decided what to do about that yet, but it's something I think about often. Anyway, just a few thoughts I had while listening to the podcast. Keep up the great work. And you keep up the great work too, Katie. Okay, so I have a letter here from Hannah about our divorced women episode. She says, I grew up in a small North Georgia town where my family went to a mid-sized, relatively progressive Baptist church. I say relatively progressive because women were allowed in the church leadership, which is often prohibited or at least looked down upon in many Southern Baptist churches and in other churches of more conservative denominations. But my family's church wasn't like that. There were several women deacons, including my mother, and there was even a woman ordained as a minister who worked as the church's co-pastor for a few years. That being said, however, after my parents' divorce, a number of the church members essentially shunned my mother and even went so far as to tell me, at the time, a nine-year-old child, how horrible and shameful my mother was for wanting a divorce. I won't go into too many details, but the divorce was pretty amicable and my parents did and still do continue to get along well. But this reaction from the church members, most of whom I had known my entire life and considered very kind, loving people, shocked and offended me, eventually leading, after I got much older and more contemplative, to me deciding to distance myself from the church altogether. I don't want to suggest that all churches or religious communities act this way. This is just one story, and I know of many other churches in which this doesn't happen and divorced women are accepted and welcomed without shame, but I wanted to share my perspective. As always, thank you for the wonderful podcasts. And thank you for writing in, Hannah. And thanks to everybody who's written in to us. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts, including this one with links to learn more about Nina McLaughlin and Hammerhead, head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 